you would take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I guess if there was a day I was going to run off, it might be today, though. Because sometimes we preachers have to preach things that are kind of uncomfortable for us. And today's one of those days. But it is in the Bible. And if I don't preach it, I'm robbing, going to rob you of the opportunity of a blessing. And I'm going to rob me of the opportunity of a blessing. And this is why a lot of preachers don't preach these things. And they miss out. And they rob their congregations or their churches of blessing. First Corinthians chapter 9 has to do with the church's responsibility to the pastor and also the pastor's responsibility to the churches. And this morning we're going to look at the first part of the chapter. has to do with the church's responsibility to the pastor. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the pastor's responsibility to the churches. Before I read this, I want to just read a few things, some statistics about pastors that will maybe greatly discourage you or thank you or, or, or encourage you the fact that that as often has been said here, and I believe we're not like the statistics. Uh, over 1,500 pastors left the ministry every month last year. 1,500. Now, these statistics come from various places. Uh, Fuller Institute, George Bonner, Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist thing. Schaefer Institute of Leadership Development and Pastoral Care Incorporated. But think of it. 1,500 pastors left the ministry every month last year. 1,300 pastors were terminated by the local church each month without a cause. And, of course, 4,000 new churches begin each year and 7,000 churches close. So that means there's 3,000 churches being shut down, um, more churches being shut down by far than, than, than being started. Only one out of every ten pastors will actually retire as a pastor. So in other words, somewhere along the way, they're going to quit and do something else. Uh, this is one that stuck out to me. And, and again, I understand some of this, why some of these things are. The profession of the pastor is near the bottom of a survey of the most respected professions, just above car salesmen. And you know what most people think of car salesmen. But you know, when you look at the scandals in the Catholic Church, in independent Baptist churches, I mean, nothing, nothing surprises me anymore. I've seen some of the most hideous things you could think of. In fact, I, there was a one I was told of that one pastor was questioned. He had molested children. He was an independent Baptist in Vermont, I think, Vermont, New Hampshire. And it was on court record. They asked him about his beliefs, and he said, I don't believe all that stuff. And they said, why are you a pastor then? He said, it gives me control over people. I think if I wanted control over people, I'd find a different way to do it. But anyway, um, these are some of the, th- some of the statistics that, that, are, that are real. 
90% of pastors report the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be like before they entered the ministry. That, that wasn't enlightening to me. Uh, 57% of pastors believe they do not receive a livable wage. Uh, 57% unable to pay their bills. 53% concerned about future family financial security. Uh, and, you know, I could go on and on. About, but anyway, these are some of the things. But you know what? That's life. Pastor, being a pastor isn't the only place that has problems and difficulties. And I was telling somebody yesterday on visitation. No, I wasn't telling him. I, th- I thought of it after. You know, you always think about these things after you talk to somebody. Because one of the guys I knock, knock on the door, and one of the guys that answered the door, he said, uh, oh, I'm not interested, but I'll, I'll give it to my wife. He said, I left the Baptist church years ago for various reasons in another part of the state. and said, I don't want to get on all that. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, he caught me off guard, so I didn't know what to say. And as I'm walking away, I'm, I, I thought of this. I, I wish I would have said to him, you know, I understand, sir. I've left churches too. But I haven't forsaken the Lord. Churches do go bad. There are pastors who are in the ministry for evil reasons. But... There are those who are in it for the right reasons as well. And we're going to look at motivations next week. But anyway, so this morning I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, I am, not, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or only I and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth of warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? And who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather... Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for better for me that die than that any man should make my glorying void." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that we have to open your precious word. Father, we do thank you that we have a complete revelation of yourself and, every, and, and everything that we need and face in life and every issue that we face is addressed in your word of God by clear command and principle. 
And so, Lord, we pray that as we look into this passage of Scripture and consider the responsibilities of a pastor, this, uh, the church, the pastor this morning, we pray that you would just encourage our hearts and, and, and challenge us and, and help us just to be sensitive, submissive to uh, uh, what you command uh, your people. And uh, so, Lord, we just give you the glory for it, and we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there, as I said, there is much misunderstanding in our, in our churches concerning the responsibility of the church and pastors. And it's not all the fault of the churches. Many just don't know. And many times the reason they don't know is pastors do not teach them. Most often, I think, it's because they're uncomfortable preaching on such topics because it draws attention to themselves and the church's responsibility to them, but also their responsibility to the church. This works both ways. Over which the Lord has made them overseer. If you're thinking about the ministry and you aren't willing to address these issues, don't go into ministry. That's all I can say. Because you're going to do your church, the people that you minister to, a disservice. You know, Bob Mitchell challenged me on this quite a few years ago. He said, he said, preacher, if you don't preach on it, your people will not learn it. And it will be your fault. He said, a guy told me that years ago, and it's been the, some of the best advice I was ever given. And so even though it makes me uncomfortable, I know it's right. So I know that's the right thing to do. It is humbling to do it. Uh, because it, again, does draw attention to, to ourselves. Uh, but anyway, I want to notice several things this morning. I have, uh, I think, two main points, just two main points, but I have quite a lot of sub-points. Um, anyway, first of all, the appointment of the pastor. Notice verses 1 and 2. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work? In the Lord. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. So, Apostle Paul, of course, the, the, the church of Corinth was evidently questioning his apostleship. As we're going to see later on, there were others who come in and, you know, took from them and, and also taught them and, and seemed to be in. Uh, uh, it caused some disregard for who he was. But, but we see here, first of all, his appointment. And notice, first of all, his identity. As we think about his appointment, and notice two things that show his identity, the reality of who he is. First of all, his faith. His faith. Verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Paul demonstrates to them very clearly that he was called by the Lord and had seen him on the road to Damascus. This gives evidence that he has genuine faith in the Lord. His faith. This calling uh, and, 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 his, and into his genuineness of his call to the ministry, this calling was solidified to the churches by the Lord's appearance to Ananias. As the pastor, as a pastor, I believe Ananias was a pastor at the church in Damascus. If you remember in chapter, Acts chapter 9, after Paul had, 
had met the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to Ananias in chapter 9 of Acts and verse 11. It says, And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street, which is called Straight, inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Has seen a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things by many of this man, how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. And he here, hath, he, here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hast sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And of course we know that he was immediately baptized. So this calling, or this faith, was solidified by the fact that the Lord appeared to Ananias, and Ananias baptized him. This is also further solidified by the fact that the church in Antioch, uh, where Paul later came to minister along with Barnabas, remember Barnabas called him, sent for him, and, and, and brought him to Antioch. But the church in Antioch demonstrated that the faith of Paul, by their sending him out uh, uh, as a... As a missionary, as we would call it, or an evangelist, an uh, evangelist or missionary, what an evangelist is, in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And of course, this demonstrates to us a pattern in the scriptures that pastors who sense a call of God must have the authorization of the church. That's really what ordination is. That's, all, that's what ordination is. It's an authorization of a church that a man is called to the ministry. Uh, it is a setting forth of one believed by the church to be the Lord's chosen and therefore authorized by the church to be a pastor or a missionary. And to reject the authority then of the pastor is to reject the authority of the church, of which Christ is the head. It's not a rejection of the pastor. It's a rejection of God's ordained authority. And that is the church. Some years ago, we had a family that had a problem with a prior pastor. And after the prior pastor left, they thought they could come back. And everything would be just okay. I said, no. And I called them in, called him in, before the deacons. And we, I addressed him very clearly. I said, you know, you had a problem before. He said, well, that was with the pastor before. And that's not, you know. I said, no. If you have a problem with the pastor, you have a problem with the church. The church voted you out. Not the pastor. And you have to make things right with the church if you think you're going to get back into the church. You see, this is, this is the authority of the church. The pastor gets his authority from the church 
not in himself. And his authority comes, is confined to the word of God. So we see Paul had this divine appointment by the Lord that was given to him. Of course, he was, he was you know, distinct in that he was not only chosen as a pastor or a missionary, but he was also an apostle. He had authority, which no pastor has today. You know, as an apostle, he had authority over churches. Of course, we have no apostles today. Well, we have our pastors. And pastors don't have authority over other churches. They only have authority in their own church. And so, this appointment is identified by his faith. It's also identified by the fruit that was brought out in his life. You know, this is, this is like, to me, this would be Paul being almost sarcastic. If you notice in verse 2, he said, If I be not an apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. In other words, the sign or the confirmation or the proof that authenticates that I am an apostle, I am a chosen vessel of God for the ministry, are ye. Are ye. And if you're trying to discredit my appointment of the Lord, you also have to discredit yourself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You know, this was an ongoing problem at Corinth. For those that were, there were those who questioned Paul's wisdom, and, 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 and uh, you know, there were those who pride themselves in having a lot of knowledge and wisdom at Corinth. But 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. You know, one of the things Paul did not do is he did not promote himself. He said, I want your faith to stand in the power of God, not in the power of Paul. You know, God doesn't need, God, God doesn't need, uh, I don't want to say this, charismatic figures that win people to themselves and have people follow them just because of them. I fear that's why a lot of churches collapse when a man leaves the church, because they've been men followers and not God followers. They liked the preacher. He was funny. He told nice stories. Or he was such a nice guy or whatever. But when the preacher's gone... Like this guy in Wake Forest, he leaves the church and don't, doesn't go anywhere else. He forsakes the Lord. He hadn't forsaken a preacher. He's forsaken the Lord. And Paul said, I want your faith to stand in the power of God. And in chapter 10, or 2 Corinthians chapter 10 actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse uh, 10 
again, this is again this was an ongoing problem at Corinth. It says, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and speech contemptible. So evidently Paul was not a nice guy to look at. He wasn't handsome. And his preaching, he was not an, a great orator that could sway the masses of people. He wasn't impressive as a speaker. It says his speech was contemptible. That means it was kind of common and ordinary. You know, well, you know, there might be those who said, well, Paul doesn't know everything about the issues of life. So like Mary Manarium in Numbers 12, when they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? And the Bible simply says, And the Lord heard it. Or Korah, Dath, and Abiram. Moses, you take too much upon you. You take what they're really saying is you're taking authority that does not belong to you. Again, when we discredit God's appointed authority, we're undermining and discrediting our own. Yeah, there are two. One commentator said there are two infallible tests of a genuine, we would say, pastor. Faith and fruit. Upon these two things, Paul was dogmatic. He was positive. He knew what he believed. He knew what he was, and he wasn't afraid to declare it. I'm, I'm, I'm a chosen vessel of God. He knew what he believed, and he proclaimed it. He was not apologetic or open-minded. You know, the world has no use for Christians without convictions. What good are they? They're just like the world. I mean, if the world gets pressured, they cave in. And if Christians... They don't have convictions when they're pressured by the world to give in, like Chick-fil-A is starting to do. The world has no use. They're going to get pressured even greater now because they've started to capitulate. That's the pattern. I mean, you wouldn't send your children to a school that was open-minded about multiplication. Somebody said this, quote, He who believes everything does, in fact, believe nothing. If everything is right, then nothing is wrong. If all religions are right, then no religion is of consequence, unquote. I told a man that yesterday. He was kind of like, kind of like going into this thing. That, well, you know, the churches are all sort of alike. And I said, no, they're not. I said, if all religions are alike, none are of a consequence. And he said, well, that is true. See, Paul's claim, and, and Paul's claim rests on his experience. And notice in verse 1, he says, he says have, I, have not I seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Paul did not read 
a self-help motivational book on how to win friends and influence people. He had a genuine experience with God, and that experience transformed his life. It gave him purpose and meaning to life. Christianity is an experience. If you hadn't had an experience, you haven't had anything. Somebody said life has a definition, but it is an experience. If you hadn't been born, you couldn't live. Love has a definition, but it is an experience. If you haven't loved, you can't know love. Christianity likewise has a definition, but it is an experience. If you haven't been born again, you can't know what it is. And Paul knew what it was. He said, again, the proof is, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? You have, had, have you had an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he been bearing fruit in your life? That's the evidence of it. Faith is proven by fruit. Paul's faith was proven by, his fruit, by the fruit that he had. He said, are not ye the seal of mine apostleship in the Lord? So we see his appointment. Secondly, we'll look at the liberty of the pastor. Notice verses 3 through 5. It says, Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? So the liberty of the pastor, I've got several things here. Uh, first of all, um, if you're looking at subpoints, be letter A because there's subpoints under that too. Anyway, uh, and that is, he has the right to live as other brethren. You know, some people look at a preacher and they say, oh, he's got to be different. He's got to live different. And I want to I mention two things here that Paul mentions. First of all, he has a right to enjoy the blessings of the physical needs of life that everyone else does. Look at verse 4. Have we not power to eat and drink? See, the preacher has the same rights to the needs of life, particularly spoken of here, physical nourishment as anyone else. You know, just because John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey does not mean that that's for every preacher. And the words of Jesus, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, does not mean that preachers and their families should be able to go hungry and have less than others do. That's not what that means. You know, there has been this idea, this thought process, that if you're in Christian service, you have to live on less than everyone else. Or you should live on less than everyone else. After all, you should be willing to bear his cross. By the way, just so you know, bearing his cross, that is not what that means. We're all to bear his cross, not just the preacher. You know, that may be part of it. That may be part of it, but it's not what it means. But it's not the idea that ought to be expected of you because you're in the ministry. You know, what I've seen many times in my experience over the last 30, 40 years 
being in the ministry is it it's 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 it is this way because it's expected, not because there's a lack of funds to provide. Because I've been in ministries that have $50,000 in the bank, and ministry staff lives under poverty level. And have a hard time making ends meet. They can't buy a house. You know, that just makes me a little bit irritated. And the church has $50,000 setting in the bank. And I know what I'm talking about because I was a member of that church. You know, you know this, is, this, is all, this always struck me kind of funny. What did Elijah tell the widow at Seraphath? Make me a little cake first. First. You know that sounds selfish? I mean, you're going to preach your, you're going to tell a widow that's about to starve to death and her son to make a cake for you and her and her son, but to make one for you first. That sounds very selfish. Just so you know, those words are inspired. They're inspired. This was a test for her. Because God gave her a promise along with that command. Because if you do this, the bear of meal should not waste or the oil run out. Now, although I do think many a preacher would do well to take heed to a little cake. <laughs> But he has the right, you know, a person in the ministry has the right to enjoy the blessings of life, physical need that everyone else does. Secondly, he has power to enjoy the blessings of marriage and a family. Notice verse 5. Have not we power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of, our, of the Lord and Cephas? You know, celibacy for the clergy, and I, don't, I hate that word, it, it, quote, unquote, is not taught in the Bible only in the false religions or cults. Now, Paul encouraged that in chapter 7, but remember, it was only because of the present distress, because of the persecution that was coming on the churches. He said it would be better during this time that you didn't have a wife to be burdened with in case you had to flee. That, that was, but that was only for that present distress. But it was something that Paul and obviously Barnabas chose for themselves. Because you notice in verse, and I never really saw this before, but as a study of this, it, this was brought out to me. In verse 5, again, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, it's referring to the same thing, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? He says, have we. He's referring to him and Barnabas. Now, you know, this, again, this was something that he chose for himself. And again, the lifestyle that Paul lived for the Lord, it was much better that he didn't have a wife. Could you imagine a wife traveling with him, and he goes into Thessalonica, and there's a riot? Well, he goes to Lystra first, and he's stoned and left for dead. Then he goes to Thessalonica, and he has to run away from there. And he goes to Berean, 
And the, the people at Berean are more noble than those from Thessalonica. They've received the word, but people from Thessalonica come down to Berea and chase them out of Berea. So Paul is constantly on the run. Could you imagine having a wife in that? However, he does remind us that Peter had a wife. Peter had a wife. The word Cephas, the name Cephas, is another name for Peter. And Matthew 8.14 tells us when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. You know, no man's going to have a mother-in-law if he doesn't have a wife. So obviously Peter was married. He enjoyed the blessing of married and marriage and a family. And a, 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 a pastor, a man of God, has that privilege uh, it's that he ought to be able to enjoy as well as anyone else. So that's a liberty that he has. Then what you notice also, so he, the, the uh, pastor also has the right to financial support for his service. Now, this is a lengthy passage, and there are five things Paul gives here to support this reason. And, and he says in verse 6, Or I only and Barnabas have we not power to forbear working. In other words, do we not have the right to be financially supported by these or those to whom we minister to and not to have to make tents to supply our needs? And the answer is, yes, he does. And he gives five reasons, five biblical reasons why that is so. First of all, custom. Verse 7. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit there? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? A soldier did not pay his way to war. Doesn't pay his way. And a farmer eats and lives off his vineyard or the fruits of his farm. The shepherd eats and drinks of the milk of his flock. He enjoys the blessings of his flock. They provide for him. The farm provides for the farmer. And those that the soldier goes to war for provide for the soldier. And the implication is very clear here that then those to whom a man of God ministers to ought to supply for the needs of the man of God. He's to receive the fruits of his labor. You know, all these and all, all workers or service employees receive wages for their service. And the same is true with the ministry. Secondly, it is supported by the law, verses 8 through 11. Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? In other words, what he's saying here is, does God really care that much for oxen? No, God doesn't care as much for oxen as he does for people. Notice the next verse. Or saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. For if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap of your carnal things? And so, again, this is a, this, the, the verse 8 there is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
or chapter 24, or 25, verse 4, which simply says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And, Paul's, and, and by the way, that verse is tucked in there seemingly out of place. And Paul says the reason God said that is because he don't care that much about oxen, though he does care for oxen, but he ca- it isn't that he cares so much for oxen, it's that he cares for his people. And, he, and Paul says he's caring for, for our sake. It's for our sakes. The point is, he's saying it for us. You know, it, the truth here is, if you muzzle ox when he is serving you, it will weaken him. And what they do, they put that oxen in a yoke, and they'd be grinding corn, and he would walk around all day long in that yoke, just in a big circle, turning a big stone, grinding the corn or whatever it was. It's work. If you put a muzzle on him so that he can't eat while he's walking, He's going to get weak. He is not going to be as efficient. You're going to hinder his uh, ability to grind corn. You know, a preacher that is not supported by his people with their finances, and with their prayers, is muzzled. He's hindered. You know, we laughed about it, but it really wasn't funny. I remember years ago, a lady named Nancy came into the church. It's my father-in-law's church. I wasn't pastoring then. And she was laughing about a game show she'd watched that week. You know, Price is Right or one of them. And one of the people that went on there was a preacher. And they asked him what he did. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. And they asked him why he became a preacher. And you know what he said? It's the only job I could find that I had to work one day a week. I need to find that church. <laughs> no, I don't want that church. Uh... The point is this, to pastors work. It's time-consuming work. It is thought-consuming work. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> you know, when I first started in the ministry, I thought I could just throw together the message, you know, in no time at all. Boy, I soon learn. You know, I, you know my wife says that you'd get a happy meal. That's what she calls those kind of, you know, a bag of Doritos. That's what it would equal. If you just throw a message together in an hour, you're going to get, like, going down to the store and buying a meal, and what you're buying for your meal is a bag of Doritos. Something of no substance. You know, to my shame, I have preached messages like that. But 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, God says it's a good work, but it is work. It is, good, it is work. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, he says, Let the elders that rule well be kind and worthy of double honor, especially the lay who labor in the word and doctrine. 
For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. So Paul's saying here, look, if they labor in the word and doctrine, and if you don't provide for them, the double honor is talking about financial remuneration, and if you don't provide for them, you're muzzling your pastor. You're muzzling it. See, praying is work. Preparing messages is work. You have to arrange thoughts, truths, compare Scripture with Scripture to deliver a message that is biblical. Therefore, you have to know your Bible. You know, one of the blessings, one, I believe one of the greatest helps to me in my life in preparing messages has been that how many times I've read the Bible through. Now, you may think there's not a lot of value in just reading your Bible through, but because I've done that, you know, for three, about three years' time there, when I was living in Maine, I read it through 21 times, or seven times a year. And what that gave me is a familiarity with the Scriptures. So that when I'm preparing a message, you know, I might not be able to put, the, put my fingers on the verse, but I can think of a couple words in that verse that address, that be a cross-reference to what I'm preaching on. You know what? That takes time. It takes time. You know, again, ra- arranging thoughts, truths, and again, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. That way you give a biblical message that is true to its context and true to the context of the whole Bible. And a message that has power to transform the lives of God, of, of people by the Spirit of God. Somebody said a message is worth 10 hours of work. Some preachers say more. I remember hearing an evangelist, Chuck Coffey, saying years ago that the, the evangelicals, preachers, are spending 15 and 20 hours preparing a message. And that's why they appeal that's why people are appealed to them because their message have content. Whereas he said, we independent Baptists are so busy winning the world that we don't spend time in the study thoroughly preparing a good solid meal for the people of God so that they grow. You know, preachers aren't supposed to win the world. Churches are. You know who the church is? It's us. It's not me. It's us. And sometimes it's more labor than others because, after all, what I'm doing is spiritual warfare. And there's always opposition. Always. It is so easy to be distracted. That is the hardest thing to me of preparing messages. So, again, it's supported by the law, not the muzzle of the ox. Third thing, and i got to hurry. It's supported by precedent, verse 12. If others be partakers of this power, you are not we rather. Paul's saying, you have supported others, and rightfully so, and his rights were their responsibility the moment they received spiritual benefit. They, the same is true today. You know, a church is responsible as much as they are able to compensate the pastor for his ministry. 
And again, to rob him of that is to rob themselves of a blessing. It's also, fourthly, supported by the priesthood, verse 13. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? You know, the priests in the Old Testament were supported by the offerings of the people. Whatever offerings the people brought to offer under the, as a sacrifice to the Lord, the priests got portions of that to sustain them in their ministry. Provide for their temporal needs. In fact, in Nehemiah 13.10, Nehemiah said, I perceived the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his own field. So in Nehemiah's day, they had problems. People weren't bringing the sacrifices in, and they weren't, the, the Levites hadn't begin their, been given to meet their needs. So the Levites had to leave the temple ministry and go to their fields and farm and provide for themselves. And Nehemiah corrected it. And then, we see fifthly, it's declared by the Lord himself. Verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In Luke chapter 5 through 8, you know, Jesus and his disciples were provided by those they ministered to. You know, Jesus left. Joseph Carpenter's shop, he never went back to it. Did you ever think about how Jesus, how did, he, how did he sustain himself? Oh, he was just the son of God, so I guess, no, he didn't get manna. He lived like everyone else. He ate and drank and slept. And they accepted financial support of others to whom they ministered to because it was right. In fact, Judas was the treasurer of the group. He bared the bag. You know, Peter and Andrew and James and John left their nets. They left Ze- John, James and John tells us that they left their father Zebedee and followed Jesus. In other words, they never went back to fishing. They had no other source of income than from those they ministered to. Matthew left his tax collecting. Never went back. And so the other disciples. And I want you to notice a final thing. Experience demonstrates God's way is best. Notice verse 13b and verse 15. The end of verse 15 says, or verse, uh, I'm sorry, it's verse uh, 12. If others be partakers of this power of you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. We suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Then verse 15, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die, than that any man should make my glorying void. You know, it seems strange that Paul's defending that the, the man of God ought to be paid by those he ministers to, and declaring that it's the church's responsibility to support him, yet he didn't do it at Corinth. Didn't do it at Corinth. Now, his reasoning, verse 15, sounds logical. But is it right? That's the question we need to ask. And I believe that God has written it for our benefit. It sounded logical. So to go to Jerusalem... 
But the Spirit said three times that he should not go. And so Paul's reasoning here is he didn't want to he didn't want to uh, uh, hinder the gospel. That was his thinking. But in doing so, I think he hindered the church of their benefit in obedience to the Lord. And doing what the Lord said. In fact, look at, look at chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Second Corinthians twelve, thirteen and fourteen, he says For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches? Except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you, for the children's ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So to not receive the reward for the service rendered can be offensive to the giver and render the ministry of little account or unworthy of reward. Again, Second, or 1 Timothy 5.17 says that they that labor, that, that the elders that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. To not receive the reward of ministry appears to make the ministry unworthy of support. It seems to me that it discredits, again, the appointment of the Lord, showing that it's an inferior position. Even though we're not in it, we're going to see we're not in it for the for the financial. We'll see that next week. And as I said earlier, sometimes pastors bring problems and hardships on themselves because they are uncomfortable preaching on these things. And they rob the church and themselves of the blessing of God. And as a church, to a church, to you, church, I appreciate your obedience in honoring your pastor. Thank you. I would just say what Paul said when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Pray for me. Pray for me. But you know, maybe you're here this morning and the Lord has spoken to you about some things in relation to the pastor and his church and the responsibilities each of us have to the body of Christ that maybe you haven't been doing. Maybe you need to start doing.